We've talked about it before. Who determines what's normal? And how do we know what's sane? Ultimately, we trust that doctors spend years studying and are capable of determining if behavior or experience is abnormal. But how do they learn that? It's really a game of averages. When you have a fever and chills, it's likely a common cold, maybe a virus, but you probably don't have the plague. A small twitch in your finger is more likely a vitamin deficiency than Tourette's syndrome or Parkinson's disease. Physical illness and disease are generally well-diagnosed using reported symptoms and the frequency or commonality of an illness. Colds are frequent. Scarlet fever is not. But when it comes to our psyche, our mind, how do those averages work? Human beings are a diverse population. Cultural differences and situational context mean that we don't all process things the same way. Childhood trauma can affect the way that our brains process emotions and our ensuing reactions. Studying the mind is a difficult task. I mean, you have to use the thing that you're studying to try to grasp the complexity of the human brain. In the 1880s, most psychology was still fairly biased by religious ideas of normalcy, but also by the assumption that some behaviors meant mental disease. They played the game of averages. If most people are generally happy, those who are melancholy are determined to be abnormal. If most people are straight and chose partners of the opposite sex, that's normal. It fits reproductive standards. Are these characteristics normalized or natural? Are we taught that we should, in general, be happy? Are we dissuaded from being honest about our melancholy? Is it our fault if we are sad or disillusioned by what we are told we should be feeling? We put a lot of trust into the doctors who should know how to best treat the abnormal feelings or experiences of human beings. But science doesn't know everything. It's a constant pursuit of a more pure truth. So when patients in the 1800s had symptoms of common diseases, such as asthma, indigestion, menopause, laziness, or complications of various human conditions, such as disappointment in love, childbirth, death of a son in war, the desertion of a husband, or a tendency toward seduction, or worse, physical illnesses such as epilepsy, rabies, tuberculosis, or the loss of an arm, these individuals were housed in an asylum. They were treated for mental illness due to a lack of understanding of their condition, context, or experience. So then, what happens when we're deemed non-normative and placed in an asylum? Our freedom and independence is taken. In the best of circumstances, we live with assistance. But in this story, it's so much worse. An overcrowded hospital built for 250 is holding 10 times that and forcibly closed nearly 50 years later due to poor patient treatment. This hospital is famous for being the home to a trusted doctor, a pioneer in his field. This man was celebrated for his innovative treatment. The procedure was simple. They took a part of your mind. He was the creator of the lobotomy. What happens when someone takes the very organ that makes you, you? What parts of your psyche are they removing? How will this affect your memory, your emotions? Is it not illogical to take a part of the mass of neurons that, when fired, create and store all that we have ever known about the human experience? I'm Nikki, and this is Tales of Two Cities. 
Hello? Welcome. This is the two cities. Oh, I'm so excited. Welcome back to the final episode in our Halloween marathon of minis. Join us as we take a look at some of the most inhumane treatment of patients, some in need of care and others in need of their freedom. First, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Weston, West Virginia. In the 1850s, the Virginia General Assembly authorized the construction of a hospital. It would be called the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. A consultation with Thomas Story Kirkbride then superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane, brought them into agreement on the construction of the hospital in the Kirkbride plan. Listeners may remember this from our episode on the Oregon Hospital for the Insane in Salem, Oregon. It too was built in the Kirkbride plan and also was well known for the poor treatment of its patients. Most prominently, 5,000 copper canisters of unknown human cremains that had been kept in the basement for decades. Head back to our episode and dare to look inside for more on that. The Kirkbride plan was designed with an intention to heal the mentally ill. The exposure to natural light and circulation were believed to be critical in their healing. The bat wing structure sprawled the wings of the hospital out in both directions, staggering them towards a main central piece. Kirkbride had based this on the philosophy of moral treatment and environmental determinism. Should you treat them well in the right space, fit for healing, they would heal. The long, narrow buildings were typically eight wings, meant to accommodate about 250 patients. Kirkbride also guided that each wing would be a separate ward, containing its own comfortably furnished parlor, bathroom, clothes room, and infirmary. Patient rooms were meant to have high ceilings. Kirkbride suggested 12 feet, and they were meant to only hold a single patient. The wings were staggered as so, to ensure light and fresh air. The long, narrow building did not have windowless rooms. It was also intended to provide patients with privacy and comfort. The asylum was designed in a Gothic Revival and Tudor Revival style, as designed by Richard Snowden Andrews, an architect in Baltimore, and it probably doesn't help with how creepy it looks. Construction began on the site in Weston in 1858 with prison labor. A local newspaper reported seven convicted Negroes as the first to arrive and work on the project. Construction was abruptly interrupted by the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861. Following Virginia's succession from the United States, they demanded the return of the hospital's unused construction funds for its own defense. Before that could happen, the 7th Ohio Volunteer Infantry seized the money from the bank and delivered it to Wheeling in what is now West Virginia. Quickly, the money was used to establish the Reorganized Government of Virginia, which sided with the northern states during the war. The Reorganized Government resumed construction on the hospital in 1862, and in 1863, with the admission of West Virginia as a new state, renamed the hospital to the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. While construction continued until 1881, the first patients were admitted in October of 1864. The central clock tower was finished in 1871, and separate rooms for black people were completed in 1873. The hospital was massive, including a farm, dairy, waterworks, and cemetery on the 666 acres, with the intention of being self-sufficient. In 1913, the hospital changed its name yet again, this time to the Weston State Hospital. 
What had been designed to house about 250 patients quickly outgrew its ability to provide space and solitude as described in the Kirkbride plan. By 1880, the hospital held 717 patients. That more than doubled in 1938 with 1,661 patients and over 18,000 in 1949. Its peak was in the 1950s with 2,600 patients in a severely overcrowded condition. In the 1880s, diagnosis of mental illness skyrocketed. Soon, the hospital had more than three times the number of patients it was constructed to treat. Rooms meant for one person were crowded with three, four, and sometimes five patients. The dairy and farm could not sustain the number of patients either, and soon some patients began to starve. A 1938 report surveyed those housed in the hospital as being epileptics, alcoholics, drug addicts, and non-educable mental defectives, and the hospital held six times the capacity of the building. Of course, we now know that each of these conditions requires different treatments. Those with epilepsy do not necessarily need to be in a treatment center. Those with drug and alcohol dependency need a particular type of treatment, while non-educable mental defectives likely refers to neurologically diverse individuals that we now recognize are not uneducable, but simply different. Though without the proper staffing for these patients, they were often running wild and unable to be controlled by the orderlies. By 1949, the Charleston Gazette, a West Virginia newspaper, was conducting a report. A series of articles released in 1949 found poor sanitation and insufficient furniture. Patients were sleeping on the floors in their rooms. There was no light or heat in much of the complex. And by comparison, another wing, rebuilt after a fire was started by a patient in 1935, was luxurious. Windows intended to bring bright natural light were now filthy with grime. Wallpaper peeled where patients had not yet ripped it off. Under fire by the public and recognizing the overcrowding issue, the state of West Virginia and Walter Freeman began the West Virginia Lobotomy Project in the early 1950s. Walter Freeman was born in 1895 and raised in Philadelphia by his parents. His grandfather, William Williams Keene, was a well-known Civil War surgeon, and his father was also a successful doctor. Freeman attended Yale in 1912 and moved to study neurology at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. While he attended, he applied for a position in Philadelphia, but was rejected. So he relocated to Washington, D.C. and started practicing neurology. He was the first in the city and began working directly at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. It was here that he experienced patients in pain and their suffering, which is what motivated him to complete his doctorate in neuropathology before securing a position at George Washington University as the head of the neurology department. With his expertise and having followed both psychiatrist Gottlieb Burkhardt and neurologist Iga Moniz, he began to identify an existing procedure for which he would become well-known. Dr. Walter Freeman is known as the father of the lobotomy, pioneering and performing the ice pick lobotomy. While it was believed to have been a means of calming a patient, truly this procedure left the patient drooling and permanently brain damaged. In the 1930s, Freeman enlisted friend James Watts to help him as he directed him to perform the first lobotomy on a housewife in Topeka, Kansas, Miss Alice Hood Hammett. Within two months, 
the two had performed lobotomies on 20 patients and claimed that 63% of the patients were better, 24 were unchanged, and only 14% were worse after surgery. After 10 years of performing lobotomies, Freeman heard of a doctor in Italy operating through patients' eye sockets rather than drilling through the skull. Freeman formulated the new procedure called the transorbital lobotomy, also known as the ice pick lobotomy. The procedure began by inserting a metal pick into the corner of each eye socket, hammering through the thin bone with a mallet and moving it back and forth, severing connections to the prefrontal cortex in the frontal lobes. The new treatment did not require a neurosurgeon and could be performed without anesthesia by using electroconvulsive therapy to induce a seizure. This allowed the procedure to be practiced in many psychiatric hospitals that were overpopulated and understaffed. They didn't need a surgeon and they didn't need an operating room. By the time that Freeman was working with patients at Weston State Hospital, Watts had abandoned the partnership feeling that he had overused the procedure and finding it cruel. Freeman was on a spree. He went on a national tour visiting mental institutions, performing lobotomies, and teaching staff the methods. He charged $25 per procedure. Freeman famously performed a lobotomy on Rosemary Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's sister, which left her with severe mental and physical disability. After four decades, he had personally performed as many as 4,000 lobotomies in 23 states, of which 2,500 had been with his ice pick method. It's reported that up to 40% of his lobotomy patients had been gay individuals who were lobotomized in attempts to change their homosexual orientation. In February 1967, Freeman performed his final surgery on Helen Mortensen. Mortensen was a long-term patient having already had two lobotomies. This third killed her. She suffered from cerebral hemorrhage. It wasn't uncommon. As many as a hundred of his patients had also suffered from the same fate, but it was Helen's death that finally banned him from further surgery. During this time performing lobotomies, he never wore gloves or a mask. His patients often had to relearn how to eat or use the bathroom. Relapses were common and some people never recovered. About 15% died from the procedure. In one chilling case, a patient at Cherokee Mental Health Institute died when he stopped during the procedure to take a photo and the instrument went too deep into the patient's brain. He also lobotomized 19 minors, including a four-year-old. His procedure became a popular tactic for dealing with overcrowding and understaffing at Weston. In a single two-week period in the 1950s, one doctor performed 228 ice pick lobotomies. Other methods of treatment included ice water baths, bloodletting, insulin coma therapy, confinement cribs or worse cages, and electroshock therapy. And remember, some of the recorded reasons for institutionalization included asthma, epilepsy, rabies, tuberculosis, vicious vices in early life, seduction, egotism, bad whiskey, indigestion, doubt about a mother's ancestors, loss of an arm, change of life, menstrual derangement, childbirth, disappointed love, death of sons in war, domestic trouble, laziness, reading too many novels, masturbation, fits, and desertion of husband. 
In the early years, it was not difficult to have someone committed. Angry husbands or other family members could claim that a woman was experiencing menstrual derangement. A woman experiencing the grief of her dead son could easily be committed. And in later years, others would receive money for dropping off potential patients. No questions asked. Nothing improved at Weston. Reports of suicides, rapes, and murders were common. Patients were whipped, shackled to walls, immersed in ice water, and tortured. By the 1980s, the population of the hospital had drastically decreased due to changes in the treatment of mental illness and the diagnosis of mental illness. Though the poor patient conditions remained, patients who could not be controlled were often locked in cages like animals. In 1986, then-Governor Arch Moore announced plans to build a new facility elsewhere and convert the hospital to a prison. Some would argue that it already was a prison in the century that it had been mistreating patients. Ultimately, though, the new hospital, the William R. Sharp Jr. Hospital, was built in Weston, and the old Weston State Hospital was closed in May of 1999. The building remained abandoned for years, except for several city and county police officers who were found playing paintball in the building in 1999. Following the incident, proposals for adaptive reuse of the building began. The Weston Hospital Revitalization Committee was formed in 2000 to preserve the building and find appropriate tenants. By 2004, three museums had been opened in the main hospital building, one on military history, one on toys, and one on mental health. They closed shortly after due to fire code violations. The hospital was auctioned by the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources on August 29, 2007, to Joe Jordan, a contractor from Morgantown, who paid $1.5 million for the building. Jordan uses the building for an annual fall fest with guided historical and paranormal daytime tours, as well as ghost hunts and paranormal tours at night. The main building today operates as a museum, with paintings, poems, and drawings made by patients in the art therapy program. A room is also dedicated to the treatments and restraints used in the past, artifacts such as a straitjacket and hydrotherapy tub. Though this hospital is believed to be one of the most haunted asylums in the country, through soundproof walls, reports of screams are frequent. Since the building has been closed as a hospital and reopened, reports of seeing ghostly apparitions are common. Workers have quit after hearing wheels rolling in a tiled hallway without a single living soul standing there. Doors open and close on their own. Loud bangs on pipes are also common. Hysterical laughter echoes through halls and in rooms. Objects frequently move on their own. One doctor who visited reported having a ghost follow her home. Many report seeing a ball of light moving rapidly down the hallways. Others have seen a phantom known as a creeper crawling on the floor. A ghost by the name of Ruth is said to hate men when she was alive and used to throw things at them. She reportedly continues doing this in death. A recording device captured an apparition saying, get out, in Ward 2, where two patients had committed suicide and another had been stabbed to death. The first floor is haunted by Slewfoot, a murderer who had been slashed to death in a bathroom of the hospital. The third floor is home to Big Jim and a nurse named Elizabeth. And the fourth floor is home to a soldier named Jacob. Though, by far the most frequent report is one of Lily, a young girl who appears to visitors. 
She looks to be about nine and always wears a white dress. Lily is believed to be a girl whose mother gave birth to her while at the asylum. And Lily died at nine after having spent her entire life institutionalized. She talks to people, rolls balls on the floor and likes to play music. Others have said she giggles and switches on flashlights. By the time the asylum closed, the graveyard had expanded to make room for the many patients who met their end here. What was once a 666-acre property is now a 666-acre graveyard, housing the souls of those who finally escaped the walls of the asylum. Those who did not make their presence known to all who visit the asylum today. Waverly Sanatorium was set apart from the rest of Kentucky. What I mean was it was a tuberculosis hospital, so it was separated from the rest of the community. They had their own farm and their own post office. It was, in theory, its own community. But let me start from the beginning. The land was bought in 1883 by Major Thomas Hayes as a family home. Since the house was too far away from schools, Hayes opened up a school for his daughters. His wife called it Waverly Schools, based on the Waverly novels. Thomas liked the sound of it so much that he decided to name the estate Waverly Hill. In the early 1900s, tuberculosis became rampant. Being part of the wetlands, Louisville became a gold mine for the tuberculosis bacteria. In order to contain the disease, a two-story wooden sanatorium was opened, which consisted of an administrative main building and two open-air pavilions, each housing 20 patients for the treatment of, quote, early cases, end quote. In 1912, the number of infected patients started to grow. In August, patients were put in tents. In December, the hospital opened up their doors to more patients. By 1914, a children's ward had to be opened. Since antibiotics did not exist at the time that the sanatorium was active, other forms of aid were used to treat TB patients. For example, heat lamps, fresh air, and positive talk and reassurance was believed to aid patients. However, since there was no real understanding on how to cure the disease, doctors tried any method possible. They used to insert balloons in the patient's lungs, filling up with air to help them breathe. They removed ribs and muscle to alleviate pressure. Most of the surgeries were painful or fatal. The death rate of TB patients at the time was one death per day. Was one death per day. The death count started to pile up, reaching about 8,000 deaths. 
in order to keep morale high, because that did have a determining factor of said deaths, the facility transformed the first floor into a tunnel for the workers of the sanatorium to move and disperse the dead. The corridor is 500 feet to the bottom of the hill and has a set of stairs on one side. And on the other side, there was a cart that transported supplies and bodies. Room 502 was considered the death room. Following from the issues of low morale, the staff became despondent from the rotating door of patients. Healthy people came in and left in caskets. According to local legend, the staff were shocked to see the hanging of the head nurse from a light fixture. Another nurse, who worked at 502, jumped off the roof to her death. She might have been pushed, or she might have jumped herself. Only she would be able to tell you. The sanatorium closed its doors after the invention of streptomycin in 1943 and stood vacant for a long period of time. It stands as a home for haunted house attractions and a tourist attraction of its history. Visitors have come to see the nearly vacant lot and learn more about the Kentucky lore. What they don't account for are the ghosts. This was an account from the Louisville Ghost Hunters Society. When they visited Waverly Hills, they found an abandoned kitchen. Things were broken, thrown aside, and left in shambles. Something you would expect in an abandoned building. Just before they left the room to check the other, they heard footsteps. They heard this door swing shut, and they started smelling baking bread. No one else was with them. One of the tourists of the Waverly Hills Sanatorium saw shadows on top of the roof of the building where they were taking a break. He and his friends became scared and ran down to the ground floor. As they ran, they were pursued by a series of slamming doors and mysterious footprints coming from nowhere. Some believe there is a ghost of an elderly woman who roams the hospital moaning and bleeding from her chained hands and feet. As she cries for help, many have noted that she runs away when people come to help her. One of the most famous ghosts is Timmy. Timmy was around six or seven when he died in the hospital. He wanders the hallways trying to find the youth he never got to experience. Visitors bring balls for him, and many see the balls moving on their own. Here is a clip of the two ghost hunters from BuzzFeed interacting with Timmy. As you hear the ball bounce, listen for the ball to bounce again after it stops for the first time. All right, Timmy, I'm throwing the ball down. You ready? All right.
you, it bounced a few extra times, so did you hear that? Do you think it bounced? A, I thought it bounced a couple extra times, but I thought it was just my mind playing tricks on me. It sounded like it stopped and then it bounced a little more. That means ghost, but let's walk down there and find the ball. <laughs> the last ghoul I want to tell you about is the creeper. If you are roaming the hallways and have a grim feeling of doom, you might be followed by the creeper. It is a dark entity that crawls along the floors and the walls of the sanatorium. There is a discrepancy of what it could be. Some believe that it's a human spirit that has been twisted by the trauma of death. Others believe it's a demon. However, it follows you and fills you with dread. I don't find horror to be that bad. A jump scare? Yes, of course, I will yelp. But a ghost? Monster? Other? It's hard to feel those chills. But going back to what Nikki said, that realization that we don't know and that we still don't know anything about mental health, that is something frightening. Our lack of knowledge, that is scary. Even though we have made great discovery, we are at the start of understanding the brain. However, reverting back to what Nikki said, our lack of understanding and our history of not knowing what we're really doing is really frightening. It's haunting. It's haunting to know that we basically tortured each other because what we were working on was under the facade of knowledge. We used our average amount of ideas and concepts to pretend we knew it all. We were fakes, but we thought we were real. We thought we were helping, but instead we were making it worse. Patients were tortured and people were killed. Electroshock therapy and experimental treatments led to the many deaths of people. But the most haunting thing about it? We were trying to help. We were torturing others with a smile on our face. We had no idea what we were doing, and we still don't. Our kindness caused torture, and we were happy to do that. So that, that concept in general, is what I find true horror to be. Just think about that. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast device. We are also on Spotify and Stitcher, so please join us there too. If you want to have more than just free stuff, check out our Patreon. Nikki and I create special episodes for the one-time fee of $5. We also offer merch, shoutouts, and other deals as well. If you want to represent us, please check out our merch store on TeePublic. We have added more fun things for our relaunch, and we believe that you're going to love them. We will model our favorite items once a week throughout this month. 
we offer many exclusive Tales of Two Cities items as well, as well as other items from all over the world. If you want to talk, write to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and, and on our email at Tales of the Number Two Cities Podcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you, and we generally love telling your stories on our podcast as well. But, and above all, thank you, and have a great Halloween. <laughs>